Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. How many Freudians does it take to change a light bulb? Two. One to change the light bulb and the other to hold the penis ladder. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. And from the Frank Stanton Studios in Los Angeles, this is the Dinner Party Download the show that helps you win your next dinner party. Our icebreaker this week came from our guest of honor, musician Billy Bragg. We'll be speaking with him later, but first, it's time for Small Talk. All right, Rico, this week in the news, um, some parents around the country kept their kids home from school so they wouldn't be subjected to the president of the United States of America telling them to work hard and succeed. A phrase ripped directly from the pages of Das Kapital. (laughs) That's right, comrade. Das Vidanya. Chairman Obama. But Congressman Joe Wilson's parents uh, let him attend an Obama speech, and little Joe acted out. No SpongeBob for you this week, Joe. Yeah, that's right, Joe. You're on restriction. So that's what everyone <laughs> at your dinner party will have heard about. We went around the offices at Marketplace to find out about some stories folks won't have heard. But they lie. George Judson, managing editor for Marketplace. What's your story this week? How to choose a grocery line. How do we choose a grocery line, the the fastest line? Well, mathematicians would say it's random. You can't do it. But this is a great world, and someone has taken hours and hours to investigate. Is the express lane faster? And so what did we find out? No. (laughs) Is my name mentioned anywhere in this article? Because I I think... You're the guy who is trying to pay with a check in a cash-only line? (laughs) I'm the guy who went to buy milk, and it turns to feta by the time I get out of there, because it's taking me so long. Jeremy Hobson, New York reporter, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, Rico, you know, there's always a problem uh, keeping doctors awake because they work such long hours. Indeed. Well, uh, Queensland, Australia has a really interesting idea to save a little bit of money. Just give them more coffee. So instead of hiring more doctors, they're saying how many cups of coffee should a doctor drink? Four to six cups a day. And they've also recommended sugary snacks. And then when they get all stressed out and jittery, I guess the prescription is a bottle of gin. Stacey Vanek-Smith, senior reporter for Marketplace, what's your story? Well, the prime minister of Bangladesh has banned government employees from wearing suits, jackets, and ties. Why would he do that? Because he wants to save money on air conditioning. So people are supposed to have, like, untucked shirts and, you know. So this is the sort of things we need to do for the environment, like not wear ties, shorter work weeks. I, I think we can get into it. I know. Save the planet. Wear hot pants. <laughs> just like we all do at Marketplace. That's right. Speaking of, there goes Kai and his clam diggers. Yeah. (laughs) And now, time for cocktails. Once more, dear listeners, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like soaking a history book in booze, wringing it out into a martini glass, and adding a twist of excellent. It's exactly what it's Isn't like. Isn't it is exactly like that? <laughs> so let's begin with the history. This week, way back in 2001, British TV cameras captured a million-dollar con job as it happened. Now, the non-Brits at your dinner party probably won't have heard about this. Thanks to our friend Michelle Philippi, you're about to. British Army Major Charles Ingram wanted to be a millionaire really, really badly. See, Charles and his family were obsessed with the TV trivia game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? His wife, Diana, became a contestant and won 32,000 pounds sterling. His brother-in-law did the same thing. But it's not called Who Wants to Be a 32,000 pounds-yonaire. The Ingrams wanted to win bigger. They got their chance. 
Charles managed to get on the show. Only problem, he wasn't very good. In fact, on the first day of taping, he barely made it to the 8,000 pound question. But on the second day, something weird happened. Charles kept getting answers right, even to questions he admitted he knew nothing about, which was almost all of them. Soon he'd won way more than 32 grand. He was on track to win a million. And guess what? He did, but he didn't get to keep the money. Because during the taping, the show's sound guy noticed this. <coughs> Coughs coming from Techwin Wittock, a veteran quiz show contestant sitting behind Charles in the studio audience. Charles would read possible answers aloud. I don't think it's rugby union. I don't think it's lawn tennis. And when he got the right one? But I think it's cricket. <coughs> Techwin always seemed to cough. In play? Final cricket. Answer. Cricket, final answer. Oh, except on one question, when Diana developed the cough. <coughs> Millionaire's producer studied the tape and gave Charles a call. Mr. Ingram, we have suspicions that there were irregularities during the taping of the show in which you participated. Oh, good Lord. The Ingrams were found guilty of fraud and got an 18-month suspended sentence. The Army forced Charles to resign. He still says he didn't cheat. And if the whole fiasco seems like something you would have heard about, here's why you didn't. The day after the taping was September 11, 2001. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Christian Self. He's the bartender at the 39 Hotel in Honolulu, which is in the state of Hawaii, which has the most millionaires per capita of any state in the country. So Christian, you've heard the history. What cocktail does that inspire you to make? Going off the little history lesson, I came up with one and it's called Deception. Deception, that sounds appropriate. What's in it? Take uh, two orange wedges, put that in a glass, squeeze uh, the juice of a fresh lime in there, just half a lime okay. will do. Uh, muddle that with a little of the blood orange syrup, mm -hmm. a little orange vodka, and then a little Campari. Add ice, give it a little stir or a little shake of whatever your preference is, depending on how your home bartending skills are, <laughs> and gives you a very deceptive drink. Because people think it's tasty, but it's actually secretly alcoholic? Well, it is, and people see a nice red drink and they think, oh, automatically fruity, and it doesn't turn out to be, and the Campari at the end gives it kind of a bitter aftertaste. And so just like these people were probably bitter that they lost their fortune. Well, yeah, that's what happens when you cheat. So are you from Hawaii? No, originally I'm from Liverpool, England, which is funny in the history lesson because uh, the guy's actually English. Do you have any insight into the mind of an English major that Americans wouldn't know otherwise? Well, depending on where you're from in England, people have different stereotypes. And from where, where I'm from, which is Liverpool, we're generally taken as being the rogues. And, of course, we know that in Liverpool there's another way to become a millionaire. Oh, yeah, you can put out, like, a lot of really, really good music. One, two, three, five! So, Brendan, speaking of British invasions, I am about to talk to Billy Bragg. We just did a story about a British scandal. And yes, I found the one Liverpudlian in Honolulu. That is amazing. <laughs> well done, my But friend. it was worth it just to say that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, you can invade our inbox. Drop us a line at dinnerparty at kpcc.org. .co.uk.
Our guest of honor this week is one of my favorites, Mr. Billy Bragg. Uh, he fused punk rock and love songs and socialist activism into a new kind of folk music in the 80s. Uh, in the 90s, he became a Grammy winner. And I'm speaking to him just before the North American debut of his latest project. He has written new English lyrics to Beethoven's Ode to Joy. And, Billy, the first performance of this piece, the UK debut, was at the reopening of a British concert hall. Why there? You have to understand the context of the building that we were celebrating the reopening was built in the 1940s on a a site which had been destroyed by German bombers. That was in the back of my mind when I was thinking, you know, here's the German guy Beethoven, he's coming into the festival hall, which was destroyed by Nazi bombers. You know, it's... There's a powerful message here about people coming together, former enemies, reconciliation. Now, this is normally performed with a full choir and, a, and an orchestra. You want to give us an acoustic sampling? Just a verse, yeah, why not? See now like a phoenix rising from the rubble of the war. Hope of ages manifested, peace and freedom evermore. Brothers, sisters, stand together, raise your voices now as one. Though by history divided, reconciled in unison. Well, that's just lovely. Yeah, that's what Beethoven said. So it, it's my understanding that it, one of the reasons you rewrote the lyrics was to make it easier for a choir of school children to sing at that show? I just said, I'll just write a couple of verses that can be sung in English, because the kids are having a bit of trouble with the original lyric, which was written by a guy called Schiller, which goes into great detail about Elysium's daughters. They weren't interested in that. Oh, that's kind of Spandau Ballet kind of thing. They weren't really up for that. So, so we're really listening to a kid's tune. It is kind of a kid's tune. That's why it's so memorable. You know. It is kind of like one of the first pop songs in a way. Very much so. And there is evidence that the, the original lyric was famous as a drinking song. Really? For sure, for sure, yeah. An ode to joy indeed. All right, so we have two standard questions that we ask everyone on this show. The first is, what question should we not ask you if we were seated next to you at a dinner party? What I think about uh, Marx and what he said about uh, the uh, historical dialectic. Because you just get sick of talking about socialism? Because I don't know. Anything about political theory, I've never done political theory. The politics I do is practical and straightforward. There's an issue, how do you deal with it? Uh, and those people who particularly come from the Marxist tradition analyse everything in a particular way. You know, They spent a long time in my country debating whether the Nicaraguan revolution of the Sandinistas was a bourgeois revolution or was a workers' revolution. Who cares? They need help. It doesn't matter what Marx would have thought about this. So, yeah, don't get me started on Karl Marx. Groucho Marx... All the way. Fair enough. Uh, Second question. Tell us something we don't know, something that uh, no one at our dinner party is going to know. And that can be about yourself or the world at large. Well, here's an interesting thing. I was sitting at the traffic lights on um, Fairfax in Los Angeles and uh, noticed this huge plume of smoke, 5,000 foot high. Because there are a ton of forest fires going on in L.A. right now. But what it looked like was there was a volcano just over the other side of the Hollywood Hills that was about to blow. It looked like crack a bleeding tower. But it reminded me that underneath Yellowstone National Park, not underneath it, I mean, the Yellowstone National Park is a massive, huge, giant supervolcano. And if it should explode in the way it's exploded in the past, it would throw so much stuff up into the atmosphere that it would create a a global winter. And the second scary thing is it's overdue. And uh, you live right near it. So now I really need to hear Ode to Joy. 
So Rico, I'm not making this up. I actually used to work at Yellowstone National Park. The, as a ranger? Uh, uh, yes. That's a lie. Okay, I was the waiter. But um, I can tell you, volcanoes aren't the scariest thing there. Every autumn around this time, elks mate. And when they don't mate, they're thinking about mating, and they get really, really <laughs> angry. And let me just tell you, it's hard uh, selling a plate of pasta primavera when you have elks doing the horizontal lumbata outside the window. <laughs> Creating elk babies? Now, now I'm imagining Yellowstone erupting, only instead of lava, it's like a, a, a hail of elk. This is exactly why the NRA argues for AK-47s for hunters. This could be a real issue. Uh if you want to hear stories like this compressed into 140 characters, ladies and gentlemen, follow us on Twitter, Dinner Party DNLD. Helps I beat of America, helps I gun for themselves, helps I the suntan suburb boys in the California girls. So we've met our guest of honor, now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we see what's up in the world of food. So Rico, I'm sorry to report that food is dead. Cool. <laughs> Wait, that doesn't make sense. I know. Neither does deep fried butter. What? <laughs> yes, there's this uh, gentleman named Abel Gonzalez from Texas where suicide is legal, apparently. <laughs> and uh, he is selling deep fried butter <laughs> oh at a stand God. at the Texas State Fair. So I tracked him down and I asked him to explain himself. For people who haven't had the opportunity to eat deep fried butter, which are most people that are still alive, could you tell <laughs> us uh, how you make it and what it is? We actually take 100% pure butter, and mm. if you want, we can flavor that butter for you in cherry, grape, or garlic flavor. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'll wrap it around a, a specially made dough and then drop that into the fryer. It's not like a whole stick. It's like a good, healthy tab of butter. Oh, okay, yeah. It's just like yeah. a little golf ball. Exactly. And so tell us about the eating experience. What is it like to gnaw on one of these? Yeah, it's kind of fun because it's kind of small, but people are hesitant, so they want to bite into it. And when they bite into it, butter just sort of jets out of the, the product. And I keep telling people, yeah, just <laughs> pop it into your mouth and eat the whole thing. Can you tell us um, about some of the other stuff you've sold at the fair? Oh, yeah. Fried cookie dough, fried peanut butter, jelly, and banana sandwich. That sounds and, almost healthy in context. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you compare it to fried butter. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, the other crazy item we had was uh, fried Coca-Cola. Fried Coca-Cola. Now explain this to me. Think of a donut hole that just tastes like Coke. I mean, just you put it in your mouth and it tastes like Coca-Cola. So are you a chef, Abel? I'm not a chef. I consider myself a, an inventive cook. I just really only do the state fair, uh, and I, I kind of kick back the rest of the year. So when you're not thinking of ways to kill people, you are just re relaxing and hanging out in Texas. <laughs> Pretty much. Me and my dog, Scout. So earlier this week, you won an award at the Texas State Fair for the most creative entry into their food competition. And forgive me, but deep fried butter seems <laughs> like a lot of things, but creative? The ideas usually are not very complicated. It's getting the idea. Think of a paper clip or a pair of scissors. It's There's nothing to it, but without it, where would we be? Speaking of scissors, is that what you do for exercise? Do you run with scissors? Like, do you just have this whole, like, latent death wish? <laughs> I cannot stress enough. I do eat my salad every once in a while. Well, thanks for talking to us before you die. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm hoping I still have a few years. So Rico, Abel told me that he doesn't know how he's going to top deep fried butter, and he's actually looking for suggestions for next year's fair. And I bet you have some. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I didn't, actually. <laughs> well, I was thinking a deep fried martini, for starters. You know, an olive infused with gin. 
Um, I'm from Philly, a deep fried cheesesteak, and if that's too healthy, you could put mayonnaise in it. <laughs> How about deep fried, I can't believe it's not butter? <laughs> that's, there is the healthy option. Or deep fried, I can believe it's butter, but I cannot believe I'm eating it. <laughs> I could never be a and that's the Dinner Party download for this week. If you haven't befriended us on our new Facebook page, you're either A, lazy, or B, my dad. Either way, get with the program, people. <laughs> All right, thanks this week to Eric Asen and Joshua Joy Kaminsky. We leave you, as always, with One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or departing from this weekend's dinner party. The band is Unrest. This is from their 1992 album, Imperial FFRR. The song's called Isabel. Bon appétit. Doesn't matter where you're looking, it doesn't matter who you're painting, taking time to watch the walking, taking time to take the train off. Come on, come on, Isabel. Come on, come on, come on, Isabel. Come on, come Isabel. I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Kai Rizdal. I don't think I'm Ira Glass. Take your time. Brendan Francis Noonan? <coughs> I'm going to go with C, Brendan Francis Noonan. Final answer? No, I'm going to go with Kai Rizdal. <laughs>